Happy Monday, America. This is Mark Cerulli. I'm one of your hosts of the Airport Minute, uh, where we look at one of the greatest disaster movies of all time, minute by minute, and I'm not talking about the remake of Ben-Hur. And uh, now here's my co-host, Jim O'Kane. Thanks, Mark. And it is it is a great Monday because we have one of the best guest hosts we've ever had on this show. I have waited for years to introduce this fellow who's introduced me for over two decades. Uh, he is the Jedi Master of Boston Radio, Mr. Jordan Rich. Jordan, thanks for being on the show. Ah, uh, ooh, the phones are ringing already. I can tell. <laughs> That's right, That's guys. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, uh, it it's great. It's just like old home week here. Uh, Jordan and I have been on uh, his radio program for years and years, and uh, it, it's been a lot of fun talking about TV dads on uh, on his program, and now we get to uh, return the favor with uh, with doing a, a minute of airport, and we are up to minute 71 already. The, uh, the flight of the Golden Argosy Flight 2 is uh, leaving, finally leaving uh, Lincoln International, unfortunately leaving uh, Maureen Stapleton behind, while uh, Dio and... Uh, Helen Hayes settle in in row 23. It's an interesting minute by starting off with something you'll never see on, uh, on a, a commercial airline again. Somebody chain smoking in but coach. But we remember those days, and man, were they awful. Yeah, uh, I, I got to tell you guys, uh, podcasting is the greatest development since the, the wireless, because where else could you examine a movie to this extent? I love this idea, and I, I hope this is the first of many podcast about individual films because when you get to Casablanca I want to come back okay that's great yeah I hope, hope to do some more there there are a lot of great films out there that uh, are already being examined uh, which you know this is the time to get on the bandwagon because there's only about a dozen now if you go to moviesbyminutes.com uh, run by our good friend Pete the Retailer uh, the the movies are just starting to build up of course people listening to this years in the future might found hundreds there so right. check out moviesbyminutes.com poor Van Heflin is a little bit nervous <laughs> As he's, on, as he's sitting with three sticks of dynamite in his lap. But, yeah, know, but it, that doesn't stop him from lighting up, so why not? <laughs> yeah, it's so, so fascinating with the cigarette and the fact that he can walk onto a plane with dynamite. Uh, it, and <laughs> it was a Helen kinder, Hayes. gentler time. Yeah, and Helen Hayes can walk onto anything, you know. Yeah. Lady yeah, terrorists yeah. can walk onto any plane. It's great. She's amazing. I, I keep wondering what Marilyn Munster's story, that's Pat Priest sitting behind her. I just wonder if, she, if she's got her own story going on on this plane. We just never explored it. So. That's Marilyn. That's really Pat Priest? Yeah, that's Pat Priest right there. She was a universal contract player. And uh, after the Munsters finished up, she just kind of hung around and wound up as a background filler for a lot of movies, uh, Airport being one of her bigger mm. ones. Wow, that had uh, to know, be it, right it, at the very end of the whole contract era. Yeah, I would think so this is 1970, yeah, no, so no, no, that that all yeah. fold that all folded up in the mid 70s. So she was gonna gonna be looking for the convention circuit after that. Now, I, I know you guys are are so well versed in this, but I and I'm sure you've talked about the fact that you know this this was the big disaster film that sort of preceded all the 70s disaster films. Am I am I right about that? Yeah, this is this is the granddaddy of uh, disaster films. I mean, there had been things like A Night to Remember and stuff like that, and there were other airplane movies like The High and the Mighty, right. um, uh, Zero Hour would be another one too. But this is the this is the one where it kind of brought together that Love Boat, Grand Hotel, All Star cast uh, combined with a big disaster that everybody had to survive. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I remember the book being on uh, everyone's 
nightstand. Not me. I was only in my you know early years, but every adult was reading Airport by by uh, the author, and and it was a huge bestseller. And I'm sure the, I'm sure the movie for those who read it at the time was a huge deal to see it come to life. Yeah, it it does follow pretty closely the book. I mean, there are extra characters that they've kind of combined and they've forgotten about some of the stories. Mel uh, Bakersfield, uh, Burt Lancaster, for example, had a brother who was an air traffic controller also at the airport, but that was a little bit too much to follow in a two-hour movie. But this uh, this really does carry pretty much faithful to the book on the main characters like the stowaway and the and the mad bomber and all that and and uh, Jacqueline Bissett having an affair with uh, Dean Martin. So it it I've got to tell you guys before we get too far along that, uh, and I'm not name dropping, but I can't help myself. But in uh, a, a while back, I had the opportunity to be in Los Angeles uh, en route to another spot, and we were having a lunch outside where people lunch, and apparently it's a place where a lot of stars hang out. So my uh, new wife at the time turned to me and said, "Who's that over there?" And I looked over my shoulder and. Sure enough, it's Jacqueline Bissett getting into a really sleek sports car. She looked amazing. Uh, I think I would put her at about 71 or so. And uh, at that time, if memory serves, she was uh, pretty hot. She was in Bullet and other films, and uh, she was a and the, the accent alone is enough to get me going. But oh yeah, she's you know, and then her turn at the, the as deep. The I deep. still remember <laughs> that opening shot of her on the boat and uh, uh. taking off her shirt. You know, and you just see her back, and some guy in the row behind me screamed, "Turn around!" <laughs> Mount yeah. Kisco, New York, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Wow, it was uh yeah, she's she's still astonishing looking. I mean, uh she's well she she maintains very well. Yes. Uh we've been trying to she she would be our ultimate get for this uh for this podcast. Well Burt we Lancaster would be the ultimate, but that's not gonna happen. I think you'd need to do a seance yeah, for that. But, uh, yeah. He'd be very quiet. <laughs> we could probably get him, but he'd be very quiet. But there, there are there are still many surviving members of the cast, uh, and we keep putting out a, a constant. John Finlater and Lisa Gerritsen, and there's a couple of others that are still around. But yeah, if Jacqueline Bissett would be on our show, I think uh, we'd all die happy, man. Yeah, she's a, a terrific uh, actress even today. But uh, you know that it, and I guess the the shock value of him having somebody who was quote unquote pregnant out of marriage. I mean, even though it's 19, what, 70, is that when it came out? Mm-hmm. Um, there were, yeah. there were some things in that film that were pretty adult, I guess we can say, right? Pretty. Yeah, they were, they were openly, uh, this, and this was a G rated movie and Dean Martin and Jacqueline Bissett were openly discussing, uh, their abortion mm-hmm. options during the movie. And this was before Roe v. Mm-hmm. Wade. So this was all, you know, rather taboo subjects that they were hitting on for a general audience. But it still has the the 1940s feel about it. There's so many little melodramas happening. The idea of the pilot, you know, the, the steely-eyed pirate pilots up front trying to work the problems and stuff. That that all comes from World War II style movies. But this this was kind of a last hurrah for that era too. I mean, we were talking about the uh, studio actors and and all the contract players. This is. This is this is and this is all happening the same year as Easy Rider and all the independent productions that are changing the world of movie making. So we're watching a kind of a passing of the torch here. Yeah, and, and I, I keep coming back to the scene that you guys had me take a look at with with I think one of the better actors who didn't get enough attention, Van Heflin. Um, I think I believe he won an Academy Award supporting actor for Johnny Eager way back, and uh, but you know he was a. a a great turn in Shane and had a lot of really interesting roles. And 
And this really is this his final role, guys? Is this the final? One of them, I believe, yeah. One of his final, yeah. He didn't live much well, longer after. If this you thing. chain smoke like that, I mean. <laughs> no, it's yeah, but he yeah. This was this was toward the end yeah. of his career, and you know, if you remember some of those earlier roles, he was always in a lot of westerns. But he was this huge, you know, massively muscled guy who was almost threatening looking in the way he he looked. And this is he's kind of playing a an older, you know, on the verge of uh, senior citizenship here. He's he's an older right. guy. And it's kind of against his usual type. When he's a bad guy, he's usually, you know, the mean guy. But in this one, it's more... I don't even know if you could call him... I mean, although he's going to blow up a plane, I don't even know if you could call him the villain of this piece. He's trying to do the right thing for his wife. (laughs) Yeah. In in sacrificing himself. I mean, he happens to be taking a plane load of people with him. But he's not doing it to be mean, if you know what I mean. Yeah, he's a sympathetic character because he's, he's distressed and disturbed and, you know, for all the world falling around him. And and Maureen Stapleton, to her credit, always turned in a, a believable performance. I think what makes these characters, those two characters, seem believable is that they look like everybody else. They don't look, they don't look like movie stars, and I think yeah, that makes yeah. it both effective performances. And there, there really isn't that much in the way of glamour in this movie. I mean, there are, I mean, there are the you can tell kind of a class distinction between uh, Mel Bakersfeld's wife and you know the rest of the crew and the, the high society types with uh, Jesse Royce Landis. But everybody seems to be just an average Joe in this movie. It's, uh, it's very egalitarian as to, you know, the outcomes and how, and how they deal with life. It's still, it's still fascinating how much you get dragged into the film, though. I mean, it's, it has these melodramatic parts in it, but you'll watch the movie right to the finish, wondering whether they're all going to land mm-hmm. safely. And uh, we haven't... I'm sure you've you've done much more on on George Kennedy than I could ever even think about adding. But I think for me, and I saw the movie when I was probably 13 years old or so. For me, it was uh, his character that that tied everything together. And of course, he goes on to star in all the other airports, many of them. But uh, his, you know, the tough, grizzled guy who's just going to get it done. I, I thought he brought a lot of heroic heroic. Um, uh, truth to that role, I really did. Yeah, a lot of people in the aviation industry look at him as an archetype that they want to be like Joe Petroni. They want to know everything there is to know about how a plane works, how <laughs> you know aircraft operations work, uh, minus the wet cigar. Yeah. But yeah, he's uh, he's very, he's very much the the epitome of what a competent what the what the airline industry looks at as competent. He's just you know he's the answer man. He's the uh, the guy, the go-to guy for any needs when you know when troubles around. He's the Scotty of this, <laughs> of this movie. Yes, yes, the, the or the MacGyver in some cases, but uh, it, it's uh, exactly, it's yeah. a bit well-balanced role between his work and Burt Lancaster's work on the other end of the leadership scale. Um, and again, I, I, being a huge Burt Lancaster fan from the early days, you know, Trapeze and and Jim Thorpe all the way up to. Atlantic City. I mean, I, I think his body of work speaks for itself. But uh, he, he, you're looking at a, a almost a mythic kind of figure running this airport, and even he, with all of his amazing charisma, can't really fix things until Joe comes along. So it's really an interesting. And, and yet he, you know, the 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 strange thing about, it, I mean, the the uh, the oddity is that he doesn't. Uh, it, Burt Lancaster hated this movie. He he couldn't stand it. it. It for him it was the biggest piece of junk. I think that was an exact quote of how he of of any movie he'd ever been on. 
So it's it's kind of sad. I mean, he, he comes through as a professional. He plays his role as he was asked to do, but he preferred movies more like at this time he was doing more experimental films. We talk a lot about the movie. This One of my favorites. Yeah, oh. what a great movie. Yeah. Great That's movie. absolutely yeah, there, a, your gem. Yeah. There's been a suggestion that the swimmer may be the sequel that the unintended sequel, even it was made first. It's the sequel to airport because he kind of has this same detachment for his family and everything else going on in his life, except for work. And he's so far away from his kids and his, you know, and his wife, you know, maybe if he had looked at it as the prequel to the swimmer, he might've <laughs> turned in a better or had a better feelings about making the Yeah, movie. you're right. And I think if memory serves around 1970, uh, you know, he started to take lesser roles in smaller films. Uh, I remember Lawman, which is one of my favorite Westerns at the time. And, uh, you know, he just started to move into different areas. But, yeah, he, he certainly commands, his presence commands a lot of respect in, in a film like this, whether he liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And it just goes to show you that the the acting roles here, are, the, the acting on this movie is paramount. We have that brief scene of a uh, a Model 707 flying up from the, what looks like, I guess, dry ice in a in a blank studio stage. And that's about it for the special effects. They didn't really rely on, you know, if they had done this movie nowadays, it would look like that uh, Denzel Washington movie. The plane would be shaking and there'd be all kinds of point of view shots with the jet flying around. But this isn't required for a movie of that time. We relied on seeing how the actors did it and visual effects kind of took a, a mm. second place. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, and we're uh, about halfway through this minute. Uh, we see we're back with uh, Maureen Stapleton in that beautiful Gate 33 set at Universal. She just finished the end of Act 1 when we watched we watched the plane go away and she saw the taillights of the the plane as it was going up the runway. So now we're into you know what what is the complication everybody has been set in place so when are all these pieces going to start falling? And she she walks over and acts as a segue to uh, the other uh, part of this thing which is Helen Hayes and the stowaway. She just looks so shell-shocked and beaten up by all this as as you know you can imagine it's uh it's an excellent point jim a uh, great device where you know one character is is moving through her scene and then moves off but segues into the next scene and if you think about it that's the way a plane a load of strangers would react i mean no one is you know jumping into the other person's life but they're all intertwined they can't help it yeah, yeah, it's a, a great role on the part of the act, of the director being able to to keep the script moving like that. And we're back with people that we know. They're discussing uh, Helen Hayes getting on the plane. We hear about the wallet gag, right? Um, and we're back with uh, poor poor John Finlater as Mister Coakley there, who uh, is just a, a butt of another joke uh, with uh, his boss asking him, you know how many heads does he have right. because apparently he does, he's missing his head. Not exactly good uh, managerial technique. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and nowadays, that would have brought a call to HR. Yeah, that would. But all, all, uh, all great actors there. Clark Howitt, who uh, <laughs> probably best known as his role as the sheriff in Billy Jack. He was the he was the good mm-hmm. sheriff uh, with the bad deputy. Um, but he's a good, solid. I think he was a contract worker for Universal. He was in a lot of Universal Pictures. And uh, did a lot of work, and he's he's one of those guys, the ones that you don't know their name, but you know the face, and he's kind of like Whit Bissell in this movie. You just kind of see him and go, oh, I know uh-huh. how he's going to be. He's going to be in charge. Yep. Whit Bissell's uh, one of the most 
often seen faces and names in these films at that time, and uh, it was it it almost it warms my heart to see him in a in a particular uh, film of this era because you know he was everywhere, and yeah. uh, Long it's really fun, funny to watch the airport sequences uh, and realize how well first of all there are no computer screens there are yeah. landline phones with rotary dials I mean it's really quite dated technology but uh, it's not that long ago when you think about it oh yeah and if you notice on the back wall it's slightly out of focus but in between uh, Clark Howitt and Gene Seberg on the back wall there is a cigarette machine just parked out in the middle of uh, right. the airport corridor there you, you never you never see that nowadays and there'd be uh, warning signs and all kinds. Of, you'd have to have it behind a, a desk somewhere to check the age groups of people buying it. But that's, I mean, we all remember from our from our youth having those things. You could even feel what the buttons feel like when, oh, the, yeah. when the cigarettes come out absolutely, of the box. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was I was thinking about Jean Seberg. I mean, uh, absolute stunningly beautiful woman with such a tragic end uh, later on. Uh, young age. Yeah, it's a ter- ter- terrible thing. She was uh, quite quite an amazing actress. Uh, this being a more commercial uh, film, but uh, her friend, her work in the French uh, film industry was amazing. And as you said, she just had this terrible end, uh, being hounded uh, by the government, and uh, just you know her political views were were difficult at the time. Mm-hmm. It was uh, uh, just a sad end for her because she obviously was a a fantastic actress. She uh, was a perfectionist. Uh, from what we've heard, there's uh, been a bit of friction between her and Burt Lancaster on this film because uh, Burt just wanted to, you know, he had 28 days to make the movie and he just shoot the scene, shoot the scene, but she always wanted another take and get it right. And that they kind of rubbed Burt the wrong way. But, you know, she knew what she wanted, to, how she wanted to portray herself in the movie. And she came across very well in this one. It's uh, just uh, sad that we had such a short career life mm. from her. Indeed. I'm looking at the, the cockpit scene and... Uh... I know that that's the very end of the, the clip here, but I've just moved forward a bit and to see, of course, Dean Martin, Gary Collins, and Barry Nelson, the original James Bond in there. And mm-hmm. and, and it's interesting with the Dean Martin role. I, I, I remember seeing it in the theater when I was a kid, and, and I thought, well, there's Matt Helm, or right. there's the, guy, the funny guy with Jerry Lewis, but he did take his turn with dramatic roles, uh, certainly on occasion, and uh, certainly pulled it off, I think. Yeah, and he did manage to fit this movie in while he was, I mean, if you remember at the time, 1969, 1970, he was doing the uh, the Dean Martin show on NBC with the Gold Diggers. Mm-hmm. And I've told this story before, but he really did not like to uh, rehearse or memorize lines and things. So uh, he would film the Dean Martin show on Sunday afternoons, and that was it. They had one take, and if they didn't get the take right, they'd use the blown take in the show. <laughs> Uh, so, and in this movie, there are many scenes. I'm not sure if this is one of them. I was trying to figure out if he's got the cue cards on the floor, but he never, he never memorized any long speeches. So he may be actually reading uh, the current lines that he's saying on the intercom there off of a cue card that's on the floor of the set. Uh, much like Brando would stick, uh, lines onto the foreheads of other actors. Right. Uh, exactly. There's a forehead sticker on Barry Nelson. <laughs> it's uh it is a great i mean it, it's amazing how they built that entire set that whole 707 with uh uh you know the, the wild walls and stuff to get this but you still feel you know for for the time it feels like a very re- realistic film that you 
you know, you believe that they know what they're doing. You believe when they're throwing switches and mm-hmm. stuff that they actually really know where, where they're at. And uh, it, the authenticity of this movie, I think, is what sells it the most. That and the quality of the action. Well, didn't you say that Dean Martin had had been given flying lessons by uh, by Universal? Yeah, he. Had, he yeah, he had actually told Universal that he wasn't going to do the movie until he uh, got some flying lessons to make sure he knew what we what they, he was supposed to do. So he wound up getting a pilot's license out of this whole deal, plus you know a piece of the a piece of the back end. So that's not a not a bad uh, bit of negotiating. Well, I'll say, and uh, you talk about the uh, the technical aspects. I imagine, and and you guys might know this right off the top of your head, that there were technical consultants as there are in many films today from either the airline industry or whatever because you're right people today particularly could google any of this stuff and figure out they're doing something wrong i know the new movie uh floating around uh about sully sullenberger with tom hanks Mm -hmm. is uh case in point i mean everybody knows kind of what happened and there are people with uh with full journals on their computers of, of all switches thrown. So it's interesting just to note that there were experts back then, I'm sure, making certain they wouldn't do something that would be, well, for instance, put the plane into the into the ocean because they throw the wrong switch or button. Yeah, I keep wondering, you know, movies like Sully and, and things like that, I wonder how much of them owe being on screen, being a part of a genre uh, because of this movie Airport. I mean, we, we think disaster really it doesn't sound entertaining when you first think about it, but... You think movies like Airport and The Poseidon Adventure and Earthquake and all those other ones, we still have them today and we still are entertained by them. And, and they'll still push money at it for, uh, you know, for a movie about the, uh, uh, the particular event, in this case, a true story. I, I, I concur. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it takes a groundbreaking film, in this case, Airport, to start the ball rolling, and then uh, how many sequels again were there? Uh, one, two, like five, four sequels or three? There, there were three. There were three sequels: seventy-five, seventy-seven, and the Concord seventy-nine. That's right. Uh, my favorite one, uh, even though I'm I'm a, a big Charlton Heston fan and all that, Karen Black looking cross-eyed into the camera. But my favorite <laughs> one was with Jack Lemmon, which I thought was unique casting because at the time he wasn't considered an action star. Yeah, yeah, the the underwater right. one there, and uh, and it it's just amazing that they could still find an entire fleet of maybe slightly over the hill actors, but they were still top names. Jimmy Stewart mm. was in that movie, for example, and it's just um, and uh, uh, Olivia de Havilland right. was in it. So right. it's just quite a quite a few big names that would still come out, and uh, and it was more than just a paycheck. I think I think they wanted a little bit of the camaraderie there, and you know the. The plots became sillier and sillier, but it was just fascinating to see these people one more time up on the big screen. It became sillier until the ultimate uh, tribute, Airplane, came out. Yes. Right? Yeah, exactly. And and this movie really explains Airplane perfectly. I mean, I remember seeing Airplane when it came out and thinking, wow, this is just a really funny movie. And now, unlike you guys, I hadn't seen Airport when it came out, but... uh, uh, now it it just makes it even funnier, you know. You see the yeah, basis I, for all all the gags and everything. Yeah, all the all the jokes keep coming coming back. I was like, oh, that's what that meant, or that, you know. And I, I can imagine that if you hadn't seen this movie, a lot of the jokes that had kind of flown by an airplane. If you saw this movie and then saw airplane, you get, oh, that's what they meant by it. So it, it, every stereotype is for loading and unloading only. Remember that exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's just amazing what th- what this kicked off, and it was just a silly little movie. I, I think I watched it. I did see this movie when I was, you know, when I was about I don't know ten or eleven, and I'd seen it in the movie theater once. But I think get, getting soaked in it every Sunday, every couple of Sundays on the uh, ABC Sunday Night Movie, they would show Airport, and it became kind of a I think a semi annual event of seeing it on on the screen and then in the age of uh, vcrs and stuff when we could actually watch movies again and again and again it uh, it just really kind of seeps in you know every character and i guess more people are picking up on that listening to our uh, minute by minute show yeah I, and it's the funny thing is i could probably still sit down and watch this again and still be entertained by it it has, it has just had an enormous rewatchability maybe not wizard of oz quality but it's still That's- it's still a really well film. made, you know, major studio, uh, big budget uh, film, you know. And I wonder if if it like Jaws, which came five six years later, if it if it made people a little uneasy about the flying experience. I know hijacking was in vogue at that time, and uh, of course there was no thought that anybody would blow up a plane as there is today. But uh, uh, Jim or, or Mark, do you have, have any knowledge of whether or not it, it forced people to be a little more frenzied about air travel? I haven't. I haven't heard anything about how it may have changed. Like we didn't have a TSA after this came out, but lots of people were worried about this kind of stuff. It's just interesting that they they the movie seemed to worry about the wrong things. Like for example, the customs agent we had Lloyd mm-hmm. Nolan a couple of minutes ago checking out uh, Jesse Royce Landis's stuff. We thought that. Diamond smuggling was a big thing, but actually more of the problem was with drug smuggling and, you know, that kind of stuff was, was going on. That, that That's what the customs office was more involved with. But this was kind of something you'd see on maybe an ocean liner melodrama of the 30s. I, I think there was a general unease about flying uh, from a skyjacking point of view. Like you were saying, Jordan, that there was a, there was a rash of uh, people were always taking 727s to, uh, to Cuba. Or remember D.B. Cooper was, I think, the yeah. year after this in 71. Uh, there were. I know that after D.B. Cooper, there were a lot of changes to the very construction of aircraft. You couldn't open the door while it was in flight, for example. I guess between the combination of real life and stuff the, going the, the on ultimate, and movies, you know, explosion scene. Which I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. Oh yeah, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, I I agree. I you know that, that I, I think we we got more worried about mad people on airplanes with bombs because of airport. I don't I don't know if like Airport 75 got us worried about. Making sure the flight attendants knew how to fly an aircraft. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> no, I was going to say it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, uh, evolution in terms of how movies affect the public. Uh, and uh, I remember around that time, if memory serves, there was a really fun little space movie called Marooned, Gregory Peck running NASA, if you recall. And uh, right. and again, the technology. If you look at the special effects, they're pretty lame to, from today's standards, but it it made us excited about the prospect of a being in space and b working with our arch enemies the russians if you recall yeah the, and marooned was actually a, a a kickoff to the apollo soyuz test project the uh, head of the national science foundation a guy named philip handler had been to a press screen or a, uh, a special screening at the white house where they showed marooned to apollo the apollo 12 uh, astronauts, if you can imagine sitting down and watching a movie about a disaster and you're an astronaut. Well, they, they invited uh, Philip Handler uh, to watch this movie when it first came out. Uh, Handler went to the Soviet Union and uh, was talking about sharing things with them from a science point of view. And they, he mentioned the movie and explained the plot. 
when uh, he started explaining the plot, the Russians got all excited and said, well, we don't have a way of rescuing American astronauts. And uh, Handler said, well, maybe we should talk about that. And because of that movie Marooned, the Apollo-Soyuz uh, test project happened five years later. So that was a, a real key thing. A interesting connection between Marooned and Airport. Uh, the original Mel Bakersfeld, or the, the guy that George Seaton was trying to get, was Gregory ah. Peck. And when Gregory Peck dropped out to do Maroon, they picked Burt Lancaster as second choice. Interesting. So, one big circle. I, I remember what I was going to bring up uh, earlier. I, I, I should have. But when that bomb goes off, obviously, um, it I, if memory serves again, if the bomb goes off and the plane is, is low enough, according to the storyline, so that it's not... You know, the air pressure isn't that drastically changed. Am I correct, John? Right, yeah, it's at 16,000 yeah. feet. Uh, which only brings me back to another classic film from the 1960s. Everyone remembers Goldfinger. And oh, the, yeah. The finale in which Goldfinger is sucked out of that tiny window, which uh, to me is one of the great endings for a villain in a Bond film. But, uh, uh, Jim, you're the if, – if I know Jim is a rocket scientist. I used to introduce you that way. Uh, was that realistic? The bomb goes off, the whole – you know, he flies uh, out and people are – Yeah, that, 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 is, that, is, that is extremely realistic. Actually, uh, Mark is our Bond uh, expert here. He's done uh, – he's worked on some featurettes and things with uh, – and uh, commercials and stuff for uh, Spike and things. for uh, The Goldfinger special effects, Mark, how – how was that accomplished? Do you know anybody that worked on that? Oh, my God. Uh, when I worked on the documentary, we interviewed some of the some of the kind of the stagehands who were there, like the guy that uh, uh, had, uh, what do you call it, like a light under the uh, the uh, the laser table. So when the, the fake laser oh, yeah. beam was going down, he was actually there under the table, you know, following a line, you know, kind of cutting it. And uh, uh, they didn't talk too much about that scene. I mean, that was all done at at Pinewood, obviously, and and both Gert Frobe and and Connery had uh, had you know little nylon wires uh, under their suits and stuff, and people were pulling on them to to make it look like they were floating through the air. Yeah, it, it is a it is a realistic event, though. The uh, there's a scene. Uh, later on in this film, I think it's around minute 100, where George Kennedy describes uh, watching someone getting sucked out of a uh, Mats plane in the uh, Air Force during the 50s, and talking about the guy getting pulled through a one-foot uh, hole in the hole in the wall of the plane. Uh, that's actually based on, from what I understand, Arthur Haley, who was in the uh, RAF. He had uh, he had seen this happen on a transfer, or, or he had worked with somebody who had died that way on a transfer. So uh, it's being built from experience, which is a kind of scary thing. But uh, I mean, the good thing is that most aircraft aircraft are strong things, and they're tested daily to find out how everything's going, and they're 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 checked down to the individual bolts every few uh, every few weeks. So you're you're working with gr very safe planes. Of course, that's assuming that nobody uh, detonates three sticks of dynamite in the bathroom. <laughs> Well, of things to worry about, it's probably not not much to worry about. But again, movies like this, you get more upset about that kind of stuff. Uh, well, this has been a really thorough uh, minute. It has a lot of different things were, were going on, and uh, we haven't we've barely uh, taken off on on flight two. There's going to be a lot more stuff coming on later this week. Jordan, thank you so much for being a part of our show. It's uh, it's a pleasure and an honor, and uh, a real privilege to have you here. I uh, hope to have you back on 
maybe in one of our Airport 75 ones we oh, can discuss. Uh, I'd love that. I mean, Dana Winter <laughs> flying into the plane. I, I remember it like it was yesterday, and I uh, I was front center for every disaster film, uh, and, and I'm sure you guys are uh, uh, just aiming, champing at the bit to talk more about these things, so I'd love to come back. This was really fun, boys. And uh, let me just say this, uh, Jim, you, Jim O'Kane, you brought so much joy to the audience that I was lucky enough to work with for 20 years, and we had great shows. And uh, again, I thank you for doing that and for inviting me on with you and Mark. Well, great. Th hey, thank you again, to, Jordan. Uh, yeah. to meet you. Uh, well, <laughs> through sort of. uh, through the miracle of Skype. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe we'll get to handshakes someday. And uh, I love I love talking movies. Movies are the magic of our lives, and uh, we uh, the imagination is is what we have to keep alive. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, that's great. Th thank you again, Jordan. And uh, we will continue this discussion uh, here and online. Uh, if uh, anybody in our audience would like to comment on this minute or any other minute, you can do this in several ways on our social media. We have at Twitter, we have Airport Minute. On Facebook, let's look for Airport Minute. We've got a great big website at airportminute.com where you can look up individual episodes. We've got extra pictures, uh, scripts, and uh, you can listen to the whole thing if you haven't caught up with it. Also, on our uh, big airportminute.com website, you can order yourself a digital or physical copy of this movie through Amazon. It helps our site a bit, and uh, more more importantly, it helps you understand what we're talking about. It's really hard, I think, to listen to this and not have seen the movie. So check that out, please, if you get a chance. Uh, also, if you'd like to get this or any of our friends' podcasts uh, delivered to you Monday through Friday, check us out on iTunes. Just search for Airport Minute, and you can get this delivered Monday through Friday every morning first thing. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on the Airport Minute. Until next time, good day. Bye. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Bowling.